Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Marin Gidda, and each week we take a look at the big stories in the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. So this week, Josh is away, and I've drafted in Lucy Clark Billings. She's Newsweek's gender politics reporter. Welcome to the show. Hello, very happy to be here. Lucy is, of course, an avid listener and a big fan of the show, as I hope all of you are. Um, And because she is our gender politics reporter, we thought we would talk about Trump and women and basically what the Trump presidency is going to mean for American women. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was pretty stunned when I woke up and found that Donald Trump was the US's future president. Yes, I was pretty shocked as well because I think so many of the things that he said, particularly about women, would have disqualified most other candidates for for running for president. It was truly, truly shocking. And I think a lot of American women, perhaps quite rightly, are afraid of of what a Trump presidency could bring. I read earlier that 70% of voters in the exit polls said that his behaviour towards women was unacceptable and a problem. But 30% of that 70% voted for him anyway. Obviously, he hasn't been inaugurated yet. That's happening on January the 20th. And then he's going to slowly be rolling out his policies. But so far, and his his stances do shift, but so far he has been very pro-life on abortion. On key issues that concern women, for example, um, providing them with contraception, he implied that he will cut funding, that he'll limit that. So I think for a lot of women, they feel that Trump could directly threaten their their healthcare and, and their well-being. When Trump is actually in his four years of administration, it's unlikely that he's going to be able to overturn Roe v. Wade and do all of those things straight away. I mean, he said in his third presidential debate with Clinton that that would happen automatically. That's just not how things work. What I find quite frightening and what I think a lot of women in America find frightening is that he's saying these things. He's creating this quite a sort of an attacking culture against women to do with everything from contraception and abortion right the way through to just the way he sort of sexualizes his daughters, just the way he generally views women, obviously saying things in the past like grab them by the pussy. It's quite violent ways to talk about women. And that frightens people because by the time it comes to his inauguration, that's a way of almost justifying that rhetoric around women. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Well, I think that's enough from us, Lucy. Let's bring in our guests. Hi, I'm Stacey Hilliard. I'm the chairman of American Voices International, based here in London, representing Americans living overseas. I'm Leah McGrath-Goodman, and I'm senior writer and finance editor at Newsweek. Okay, so to kick things off, I wanted to ask sort of the big question. As Trump is announcing his cabinet picks, and it's going to be quite a long process, women don't seem to really have been represented that well in his in his cabinet so far. 
Does that matter? Do we need gender parity? Well, I mean, my immediate answer is no, it doesn't matter, because what concerns me most is about having the best person for the job. We have a huge list of people who are available and people who are qualified, and he has to go through those to be able to select them. But he has selected three women out of his initial picks already. So that's something to look forward to, that there may be others who he's appointing. But I only want them there on merit, not because they're a token woman. I agree that parity for the sake of parity is not what we're looking for. Um, But I am concerned um, because we know what he has already said about women who are high achievers. He's frequently talked about them as once they're a star, they're no good anymore. And so the way he values women may make it harder for him to figure out who has merit um, in his administration. And we know also that he's having his daughter, Ivanka Trump, head all of his businesses or try to really lead all of his businesses, or so he says while he's uh, president. How important do you think is the type of women that he that he is appointing? So, so far we've seen Nikki Haley, Betsy DeVos. What kind of people do you think they are and what do you think they'll bring to the cabinet? Well, he's also appointed somebody named Katie McFarland. So you have yeah. um, Betsy DeVos and Nikki Haley, who were very much opposed to Trump during the campaign, which is an interesting dynamic that he's brought them in anyway. So there is a... There is a diversity of views and opinions, which I think is much more important because it's it's that that actually shapes your worldview, in my opinion, less so than your gender. And then you have Katie McFarlane, who's much more in line with the people who have been appointed on his national security team already. So she's a bit more hawkish in, in her approach. But you have Nikki Haley as the UN ambassador, who's providing a bit of political balance. And I think that that's something that we need to have within the administration And if you talk to Trump and people who have worked with him, you see that this is what he likes in in his teams is a little bit of tension. He wants to have that debate and difference of opinions. So I think moving forward, we'll expect to see people from the outside coming in, maybe not even within the party. You have Tulsi Gabbard, a representative from Hawaii that he's been speaking with, who, who may come over onto the team in one position or another, maybe not cabinet level, but within the team. So I think there's a lot to look forward to. We have to remember, though, the cabinet is, what, 20, 22 people to be appointed. It's a long process. He has to appoint over 1,500 people in total. So there's a lot of people that he needs to shift through and and actually put into their positions. So it's a lo- very long process. But I just want to sort of throw in another point, because a few months ago, when Trump was being interviewed by a former employee of his, actually, a former Miss Florida, she asked him this question about which women would you put on the cabinet? Well, well, we have so many different ones to choose. I can tell you everybody would say, put Ivanka in, put Ivanka in. You know Absolutely. that, right? She's very popular. She's done very well. And you know Ivanka very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there really are so many that are really talented people like you. I mean, you're so talented. Right. So in that clip, he basically couldn't name a woman that he he would put on the cabinet. And so while I, I hear what you're saying, he has appointed some women and there's this diversity of opinion, it doesn't seem like he's going to be appointing that many more women. And many studies have been done, actually, that show when you have gender parity or when you have, I think the critical mass, it's, it's 30% of women on a given board or a cabinet. The decisions that are made are a lot better. Women are more risk averse. They're less likely to rush into impulsive decision making and that it's been proven time and time again you need to have that 30% minimum of women in order to have the best outcome. Does that matter then with Trump's cabinet? Well, I mean, I've seen the studies that say that and I've read the articles that that talk about that and there, there's, I'm sure there's no doubt there's something to that but I've been in in groups of, of working with decision-making where we've had to, to make decisions and it's all all men and one woman or it's majority women and it's it's the people. It's, it's not necessarily their gender that's 
driving them to make their decisions. It's their experiences. Have they been burned before? Have they learned from the past? And I think this is um, probably something, if you look at Nikki Haley, who's been appointed as a governor, this is something that makes is comforting me, is that you have somebody who's a governor who's led an executive office, who's had to make budgets, who's had to make big decisions. And it's people with that type of experience that I want to have coming in, as opposed to saying, well, science has, has showed us that 30% says this, but we've also had personal experiences that show us that that's not always the best way. I do think that just achieving parity as a requirement sort of to be held above all the other requirements is probably not the way to go. But I've looked at the brain science behind, you know, the male-female decision-making. And then, you know, especially as a finance journalist, the trading teams where women and men are a little more even seem to do much better. And it's true. But I do think we have to be looking at all those pieces. It does seem if we're looking at a bunch of experience on, the, on behalf of all of those who are appointed. And then we are looking at, in the end, only a bunch of, you know, mostly white men. I think we do may, maybe need to revisit and say, is there a way to, to make it more diverse and that diversity needs to be embraced as also a priority, but it can't be the main priority. And it certainly, I agree with you that it can't be, you know, well, it's the right gender, but not as much experience. So let's still go with the gender. I think that that would be a mistake. And I think what a lot of people would say is no one wants to have women appointed for the sake of it, and where you have this situation of um, underexperienced women um, ascending, we to don't want it. No, <laughs> no, but I, but I do hear people saying that that you know he should appoint people, and they put out a list mm -hmm. of, of women that they think. Uh, that they consider qualified. And I know if any of those women on that list would be selected, such as, say, Sarah Palin, they would have an absolute fit. But surely, I mean, we all know that there are manifestly capable women within the Republican Party who perhaps Absolutely. should be on, you know, the, the binder full of women or whatever. And I think that's, that's what most people would say. Appoint people who merit the job, but so many women do. And perhaps under Trump, they're not getting the recognition that they would deserve. Well, I think you have to also remember that his campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, was the first ever woman campaign manager to win a presidential election. I think that that, that fact has been been lost quite quite a lot in the discussion because it doesn't fit the narrative that people have that he's he's so anti-woman and you know the way that he does promote his daughter as far as really encouraging her in her entrepreneurial aspects of life but also in having her taking over the family business I think that that's actually quite um, encouraging and I was speaking to somebody just an anecdotal story they were saying they were talking to an American friend at dinner and she said well you know I voted for Trump and the reason I did that was I went to, instead of listening to his campaign rhetoric, I went to his company websites to look at the policies on women. And they're quite favorable, much more favorable than a lot of companies in the U.S. And so that was encouraging to her. So I think that he is looking. And the women he has on the transition team, that's another thing. You have to look at not just that core transition committee. The transition team is about 200 people. And there are a lot of women on there. And a friend of mine, she's been advising him on NATO and some other aspects as well. And she's talked about the number of women that they have surrounding them in those positions. So Marsha Blackburn has just come on, represented from Tennessee. And I think that there are a lot of strong women that he has surrounding him. So I, I wouldn't let's let's wait and hold our judgment a little while until it's, they're all appointed. Trump has been very open about his intention to appoint a Supreme Justice who is pro-life. How do you feel like that is going to affect women? I am personally pretty worried about that. It's not the only thing I've been worried about with the Trump presidency. I would put registering um, certain 
ethnicities and races at the very top of my list of what I'm most concerned about. But it seems that he's backed off a lot of that since he's won. Um, hopefully it stays that way. I think with Roe versus Wade, which is the, you know, the case that everyone speaks of overturning, if he appoints Supreme Court justices that are going to work to overturn it, you know, he has talked about, well, then it'll go back to the states and the states will have to decide each and every one how they want to pursue or not pursue their policy. Uh, but I think most women are concerned about that. I'm pretty skeptical that it will end up happening, even if he does appoint very conservative justices. I think that there's going to be so much pushback that it would be politically untenable. But um, maybe I'm just being optimistic. I'm interested in I mean, I don't, I don't think that even if he was to appoint uh, Supreme Court justices who are pro-life, um, that there would be any overturning of Roe versus Wade. It's very difficult to take things away from people once you've given it to them. And that's something that every politician is aware of uh, and being very careful in, when you make policy. And I think with, with Roe v. Wade that it is such a kind of ingrained issue now in the U.S. that it would be very difficult to take it away. There might be instances where you will see states trying to put limitations on things and that will go to the Supreme Court, which was something with the state of Texas that happened recently uh, as far as accessing abortions and funding so for abortion So this is House clinics. Bill 2. I, I'm going to jump in because I think I think what you're referring to is House Bill 2. So this was the legislation that said that abortion providers had to have priority access to a hospital if needed. And basically when, when this bill was in existence, a lot of abortion clinics were forced to shut down. And then the bill was repealed, but those clinics haven't reopened. Yeah. And so this has been an ongoing conversation about what limitations can be put on it or what kind of caveats around it are states allowed to make. And I think what you've seen with, with people, even if somebody like a Ted Cruz, who's not going to be appointed to the Supreme Court, but he's, you know, former attorney general of Texas and He's a kind of strict constitutionalist, and his his viewpoint on this is very much the law is the law, and I'm not going to seek to overturn things. And I think that th those are the types of people that Trump would be seeking to to put into to the Supreme Court. And he may have more than one appointment in his uh, presidency as well, which yeah. is something to which is something that people were very aware of when they went to the voting booth. And that this was going to actually change the balance potentially of the Supreme Court. I mean, as Leah rightly pointed out, Trump has somewhat flip-flopped on his approach to abortion. However, his vice president-elect, Mike Pence, has not. He has a long career of being extremely anti-abortion. How much influence do you think he will have on the stance that Trump takes over his administration in the next four years? I think if Trump doesn't want to pursue that heavily, if he doesn't want to be aggressive about it, I think Pence will have a hard time overcoming that because... One thing that's true about Trump and going back to the women question is that those people he works most closely with, like Kellyanne Conway, like his eldest daughter, Ivanka Trump, and also anyone else, whether man or woman, he really wants their loyalty. He has to have their loyalty. And uh, if he's going to invest in them in terms of a work situation, he needs to know he can persuade them. It's not them running the show. So I think it will ultimately be Trump who leads that. Yeah. And I think as far as with Mike Pence, um, and particularly with women's issues that, that people talk about. Where he's going to be very powerful as a vice president is that bridge between Capitol Hill and the White House and being able to, to potentially broker deals with uh, people in Congress and in the Senate. And if there's something that comes up that's anti-abortion or um, <laughs> I can't imagine anything coming up that would be anti-equal pay, but you know anything that would be anti, seen as being anti-woman, I imagine that that's going to be a very hard battle for one, for anybody to win, because 
Trump will have that influence in the final decision on things. Um, but Pence is going to have to, as, as Leo was saying, he's going to have to have that loyalty and be able to, to toe the party line a bit. Um, because if there's too much dissension within the administration, it's just not going to function. But I think it goes, I mean, because we can look at Pence, but we also need to look a bit wider at, at the other cabinet picks. And again, I hear what you say. It's not just the cabinet team, it's the transition team as well. But you mentioned, Leah, that, you know, a lot of them tend to be old, white and male. And a lot of his picks do hold quite socially conservative views. But I think it's also, it's it's the tone that it sets, but also the fact that as older men, they're less likely to legislate or think about women's issues. I think that's that's the feeling among his, some women. But his chief of staff is not an older white male. I mean, Reince is in his 40s. So um, Reince, previous uh, former chairman, well, will be former chairman of the Republican National Committee. He's he's not an old white male. He he would be considered kind of a modern, modern Republican in many of his views. And he's from Wisconsin, which is where uh, Paul Ryan is from, who's the Speaker of the House. Um, and also Governor Scott Walker, who kind of put his name in the hat for, for president at the beginning. Um, and they come from a, you know, that generation ex-Republican. And so their viewpoint of women and how women interact within the workplace and professionally how they're seen as far as in leadership positions is very different from, from people maybe, say, in Reagan's cabinet, where that was something that was new and was fresh. This is something that they've grown up with. A lot of women did vote for Trump. He had the majority of the white female vote, but he also had a very high number of just women in general voting for him. And that's something that I kind of wanted us to dig into a bit, you know, why so many women turned out in support of Trump, because I think the feeling was before the election that his comments about grabbing women by the pussy, that old comment, um, you know, his his views towards women would cause uh, even Republican-leaning women to go and vote for Hillary, and obviously that didn't happen. And I was watching a panel discussion on YouTube that uh, basically sought to answer that question. And one of the women, Emily Ramshaw, who's editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, had this to say on why she thought, you know, so many women turned out in support of Trump. I think, you know, what we learned probably from exit polling was that a lot of, of people, particularly white educated people, including white educated women, got into the, into the voting booth, got ready to, to, you know, punch the button and could not get beyond the premise that there might be a woman in the White House. I actually disagree with that analysis. I don't think that's that's necessarily the reason, but I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that. That's insane and ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm mincing words. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think that that was it at all. I think a lot of women had their minds made up early on if they didn't want to vote for Hillary. And then I think after that, it was an issue of now what do I do? So maybe they were hoping for one of the Republican candidates who they liked more. I had a couple favorites and... Uh, I knew I wasn't going to vote for Hillary. So for me, it was definitely a situation where in the end, I, I did a write-in. I didn't vote for Trump either. But I think it was more about not feeling comfortable with Hillary probably more than anything, but not because she's a woman. And well, it's it's interesting that you say that you didn't vote for either one of them and you did a write-in because that's exactly what I did. And I'm one of those Republican-leaning women who had, well, I wouldn't say probably more than leaning, but um, had a, I had a real issue with some of the comments that he made and that came out in the way that he spoke about women. But I don't vote on the basis of gender. And I think that that's what people discovered is that women actually, you know what, we actually think things through when we go out and vote and we think about the policies and what's going to affect us. And ultimately, people couldn't vote for Hillary for a number of reasons. I mean, we've beaten that horse to death going through through all of those. But they said, 
what am I going to be able to do? Am I going to be able to pay my student loan? Is my child going to be able to get a job? What's our child care going to be like? And they thought about the policies and they thought about the issues and they looked at the baggage that came with Hillary Clinton and they said, you know what, we've tried all of this before. Let's move forward and try something different. So you feel as though party affiliation probably trumped, as it were, gender in this election well, and when, in most other Well, when elections. you look at the numbers, there, it really was about the same as they normally are as far as the distribution of yeah. income and votes and gender. But the thing that actually pushed them to winning was those Obama voters that Hillary wasn't able to, mo- to mobilize. And so he was able to have an economic message to people, particularly in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and get them out to vote for him. And they were not enthused to vote for her. A lot of people try to make this about gender, And I just don't think it was. For the minority of women who didn't vote for Trump, who voted for Hillary or any of the other candidates, some of them are very worried and very afraid, I think, of what a Trump presidency could bring. What a lot of women bring up is the sort of quite famous interview now that he had with MSNBC, where he was asked, you know, do you think women should be punished if they have an abortion? Do you believe in punishment for abortion? Yes or no, as a principle? Uh, The answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. 10 cents, 10 years, I don't know. That I don't know. That well, why I don't not? Know. For those women who are worried, I don't know what your advice would be or what you would say. I mean, we've seen that lots of women are going out and getting IUDs fitted, so contraceptive devices that will supposedly outlast a Trump presidency because they can last for longer than four years. I mean, what do you make of all of this? You know, this, this real fear among women. Contraception is not going to be taken away from women. There's been a lot of kind of fear-mongering around this. There's been some very prominent women's magazines who have actually told their readers to go out and stockpile morning-after pills. I mean, this is just ridiculous. All of the issues with contraception have to do with the Obamacare, the health insurance, and how that will be potentially redone, repealed, and replaced. And the U.S. healthcare system is very complicated to go and we don't have time to do. It would take all 19 episodes you've done to, to talk about actually how our healthcare system works. But it's very dangerous to have those messages coming out. Um, I understand people's concerns and it's, it's natural with some of the language he's had and the comments that he made there. That was, I would say, a young candidate Trump speaking in that interview. And you can see that the policies were not fully formulated in his head when he was speaking in that interview for MSNBC. And just what we were talking about earlier about uh, Supreme Court justices and the process for that to overturn anything. So I, I think that there is a process for all of this. And people need to remember that we have a Congress that is there to actually make sure that the president doesn't make unilateral decisions that can damage half of the population. There are checks and balances that are in place to, to take care of these types of things. Let's wait and see. Let's get him inaugurated. Let's see who his cabinet is. I think his cabinet really set the tone of the presidency, who's going to be in it, how they're going to move things forward. But I think we have to wait and see before casting our judgment just too soon. That interview, by the way, that we just heard is... He was utterly harangued. If you watched it, if you physically watched it, not just listened to it, he was completely, he was literally going into a fetal position during that interview. And I don't even know if he was aware. It's hard to take seriously what he was saying because he was just kind of getting badgered over and over again by the anchor. And uh, that is no excuse for saying women should be punished for having abortions. But I did not take his response very seriously because if you listen to it again, it wasn't that he volunteered I think that they should be punished. It was, don't you think they should be punished? Don't you? Don't you? How, you know, how conservative are you? Prove it to us. And he was at that point in the election where 
a lot of people weren't getting behind him, and I think he felt pressured, but I don't think he was serious about it. Uh, not again, not to apologize for what he said. And one more thing, the pharmaceutical industry will never agree to not provide birth control. They will never agree. It won't ever happen. It's for many women, the only medication they take. Stepping aside from contraception and just looking at the broader sort of rhetoric that he's used for women in the process of his campaign and indeed his entire life, a lot of people for feeling fear just around that policy aside, just this misogynistic culture that he sort of represents, people are afraid of that. I feel like this campaign was such a great conversation starter for people with their daughters and also women amongst each other. I had a lot of conversations with female friends about how the types of things we heard about Trump doing and some of those who said that they had been targeted and then also some of his comments. If you do work in a male-dominated industry, journalism is one of them. Um, Politics is another one of them. And there are many others. You have to be pretty assertive when somebody tries to talk to you that way or tries to move toward you that way. And I think it's an opportunity for us to all recognize that we have to be better about, you know, speaking strongly when someone behaves the way Trump has in the past. And, you know, he has had um, a number of women who it seems like he became friends with afterward who were very assertive with him. I don't know if it should be just a one-sided conversation. I think it should be something where women and men are talking more about what is an appropriate way to behave. In some cases, it actually appeared to me that Trump thought he was flirting in some of his behavior, which other people saw as assault. So I, I think, you know, that's that's a broader societal conversation. And, and we do have concerns in America right now about are we losing this battle about talking about it? It wasn't just a great conversation starter for people to have with their daughters. It was a great conversation starter for people to have with their sons and to yeah. sit them down and say, this is not acceptable. And this is why it's not acceptable, because you don't do this. We do not behave this way. We are not this type of person. And I heard a lot of friends and family who have sons talking about this, that this actually made them speak to their children very differently than they maybe would have normally felt comfortable because they're in junior high, they're kind of 11 to 13 or or in high school up to 18 and saying, you know what, they're talking about the election in, in class. And all of a sudden, we're now having a very serious conversation about sexual harassment and sexual assault. And that's something I never thought I was going to have to talk to my 12-year-old about. But now we're having these conversations. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, Stacey and Leah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you to everyone who listened in. Just a reminder that you can catch us every week on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Acast. Don't forget to like us, um, subscribe to us, rate us, do all of those things. If you can't wait till next week, you can visit us at newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Newsweek.